Continuing education credits for physicians and other healthcare professionals is provided by VCU Healthcare Continuing Education. Check out cribsiders.vcuhealth.org for more information. The Cribsiders podcast is for entertainment, education, and informational purposes only. The views and statements expressed on this podcast are solely those of the host. Welcome back to the Cribsiders! Hey! I'm yeah. Justin Burke. I'm joined tonight by Dr. Chris the Chew Man Chu and one of our amazing producers, Dr. Joan Park. Say hey, Joan. Hi, team. Hey. Joan, we are so happy to have you. Uh, this is amazing. We are recording the intro several days after the episode, but uh, we're going to make it work. It's going to be great. Totally. We're happy to have everyone, and especially our guest tonight, Dr. Heather Forkey. She is an expert in trauma-informed care. This episode was great. There was a lot of just wonderful conversations about everything that our patients go through and how to address that, but not just the importance of everything that is trauma-informed care, but very tangible benefits of practices that you can implement. And as I said, we're already a few days out from the episode. I've already implemented these pearls in my practice. I'm excited to share it with with everyone. Uh, But before we share these pearls. Chris, share with us, what do we do on the show? We are the Pediatric Medicine Podcast and we interview leading experts in the fields to bring you clinical pearls, practice changing knowledge and answering lingering questions about core topics in pediatric medicine. Joan, who do we have today? We have a fantastic conversation with our guest, Dr. Heather Forkey. Dr. Forkey is a foster care and child abuse pediatrician in Worcester, Massachusetts. She is fascinated by resilience and ameliorating the impacts of trauma and has found a wonderful group of colleagues who share that passion at UMass, the American Academy of Pediatrics, National Child Traumatic Stress Network, and across the country. What she really enjoys is coming up with new ways for doctors to help kids exposed to adversity and if those tools rhyme or can be in the form of a mnemonic, all the better. She's the mom of five great kids who patiently put up with her poor poetry and word games. She not only teaches us how to identify trauma in a clinic encounter, but offers very practical tips on how to address it. So without further ado, let's get to it. And joke that rhymes with orange. (laughs) <laughs> uh let's get started we are so excited to have you dr heather forkey am i saying the Hello. name right you dr. are forkey? absolutely you got it yeah excellent um thank you so much for joining us in an effort to be informal and fun and casual do you mind if we call you heather throughout the episode absolutely please do excellent heather thank you so much for taking the time i am dr justin burke we have dr chris Chu. We have one of our wonderful producers, Joan Park, sitting in on this. We are excited to talk about trauma-informed care, a very important issue that pervades inpatient, outpatient, everything we do in pediatrics. We appreciate your taking the time for the expertise, and we would love to get you to know you a little bit better. Can you just tell us a little bit about yourself? Tell us, tell the listeners who, who you are. Sure. Um, so I am a pediatrician. I work in Worcester, Massachusetts. Uh, there, I run a foster care clinic and a child protection team. but my who I am is I'm a mom of five kids, and I love playing with words and uh, making things rhyme. I also have a special talent in that I was born in Long Island, and I could talk Long Island like a native speaker. So there you go. Nice. Five kids is giving even Chris a run for his money. Chris, how many kids do you have? Just four. I'm I'm done too. I'm- <laughs> Didn't quite make it. <laughs> Not as good. Come on, one more. Come on, come on. All right, so I get to ask my question. So what is your favorite failure and what did you learn from it? You know, I have to say that I took care of kids in foster care for many years and had no idea. Uh, We didn't really understand trauma at all. So I was a complete failure at caring for those kids. I think for a long time, we had an idea that there was something going on here, but we didn't know what it was. And it turns out that I was so aggravated by that, that we kept looking for this answer. And I feel like we're starting to get a handle on that. So it was a massive failure. It was years of failing. And and yet I feel like it allowed us to sort of see and look at a pattern. What were we seeing? And and that that's kind of what led us to today. So that might be a nerdy answer, given that I was probably supposed to say something cuter, like I I didn't ski very well. And then I realized you have to go fast. But this was, this is actually probably a more significant one. 
I like it. It's a good answer. I like that. I like thinking of failure as like almost part of the process, it sounds like. Um, yeah, it truly was. Yeah. Yeah. I like to tell people that I am a big reader, uh, even when I'm not at all. Uh, but I'm always <laughs> interested in book recommendations so I can sound smart at dinner parties. Is there any book recommendation that you have been reading or would recommend for physicians? Or if not a book, any form of media consumption, a Netflix show, a YouTube video? You know, I think I, I, I when people ask me this question, I'm like, oh, but there's so many. And I'm one of those people that's addicted right now to audiobooks because I just I cannot stay awake to actually read the books. But I listen to them all the time. So it kind of depends on what we're talking about, like brain kind of decompressing time. I have listened to, I love mystery stories, murder mysteries in particular, God knows why. But um, Louise Penny has done this great series with this great detective, Armand Gamache. And that's a cool name, just if nothing else. So that's just for fun. Um, to be inspired, I read a book called Tattoos on the Heart by Father Ge Gregory Boyle about homeboy industries in L.A. And I read that at a point where I was like, why am I bothering? And that's one of those inspirational books. And then the book I gave to my husband and all my friends who are kind of doing too many things and really stressed out is Essentialism. So those would be my three that I thought of. Nice. Those are good recs. Those are, not, no, yeah, those uh, break the mold. Those aren't the Atul Rwandi books that we usually get. So that's awesome. <laughs> what, what, I want to know what's more about, a little more about the Tattoos on the Heart book. What, what's that about? Yeah, that sounds dangerous. Yeah. So it's, it, there's, it, it's actually nonfiction. It was written by a priest in uh, LA who started Homeboy Industries, which is, he was working with kids who were gang involved and recognized that they needed and that this community needed opportunity where people saw them, like really saw them and would work with them as, as people um, in a, you know, this was trauma-informed care before we were talking about trauma-informed care. And he has uh, such a great sense of humor and such humility about the work that he did and just tells the story of these kids and teens who he worked with in a way that... I just think it's an enjoyable read, but it also leaves you feeling like, wow, there's some awesome people doing some awesome things. And that's what I want to do when I grow up. That's awesome. Sounds like you're pretty much there. <laughs> Not yet. Nope. He's doing more awesome stuff. Well, a very cool rack. I'm going to check that out. Why don't we jump into some content? Does that sound good, Chris? Yeah. Yeah. Well, actually, right. I want your question. You said Go you like it. rhyming words. I, I want to know what rhymes with orange. Nothing. That's actually a famous quote. You, that's... That's like a trick. Nothing rhymes with orange. <laughs> Guys, I have a, what about door hinge? Another one. You know, do you... <laughs> Door hinge and orange. I, I always thought that if I, if I were a rapper, which maybe is an unknown hobby that I haven't shared yet, um, orange and door hinge, I think, I think I could pull it off. And now you made me cringe. And there, so, see? We're, so we're on a rhyme binge. We're basically we're freestyling here. This is um, absolutely Reza Banesh How are we ready to go with some content? <laughs> yeah. All right, let's move on to some content. And we typically start with a example case to kind of anchor a lot of the things we talk about. But I think um, starting off for for this topic, we're talking about trauma informed care, and as a way to guide the conversation. I'd love to hear, what is trauma? How do we define trauma? Can you talk a little bit about what is it that we're talking about today? So trauma has a couple of different definitions. And actually, one of the things that we're dealing with in trauma-informed care is helping people understand what we're talking about, because we use a lot of terms interchangeably. So trauma can mean the bad things that happen to people, and trauma can mean the impact that it has on people when they experience bad things. Traumatic experiences are sometimes defined as being psychologically alone in unbearable pain and the consequences of that on the body and on the brain and on development. So there are a number of definitions and laying the groundwork for what you're talking about when you say trauma is actually one of the first right questions to ask. What, what are we talking about here? Um, because people do use terms interchangeably and then we get lost in, okay, wait a minute, are we talking about the same thing? And so bringing it to a, a specific patient that I think is one that we've seen pretty frequently in, in the healthcare setting. We have an example of Sam. Sam is a previously healthy seven-year-old girl 
who were seen in clinic for a two-month history of abdominal pain. She describes it as a cramping pain, lasts for a few hours, center of her belly, has some nausea. We do a comprehensive history. We do an exam. We even do some lab workup, and there's no clear cause. Since the start of this pandemic, Sam's family has not had any recent travel. She's taking classes virtually through Zoom. And frankly, when you ask you know, the mom, how have things been going, she just kind of breaks down, says everything is a disaster. It seems like a stressed family. In a patient like this, when you're starting to maybe see some concern that something's going on uh, behind a common chief complaint, how do you address this in a clinic setting? How do you assess for exposure? How do we kind of dive in to make sure we're doing the best thing we can for a patient where you're concerned for, for some level of trauma? So I, th- I think what you're su- saying in your question is you're saying, how do I get into something that's pretty serious and pretty consequential for this family, like from nowhere? And the answer is you don't from nowhere. There's no other place in human interactions where we would just say, hey, how are you? I'm going to ask you an incredibly personal and possibly devastating question right now. N- no. <laughs> um, in fact, um, when someone is unconscious in front of us, we say, Annie, Annie, are you okay? We start with engaging. We start by saying, hey, how are you? What's going on for you? And in that question, we're also saying, who are you and what's important to you? And it also says, as a medical person, I I have some knowledge here and you have a huge amount of knowledge about your experience and what's going on for you and your family and your child. And we're going to come together and we're going to start to try and figure out what's going on. So trauma-informed care starts with this engagement, with sort of kind of coming out of ourselves and saying, time out. Even if we've got only a five-minute visit, I'm going to start with, hey, how are you? What's going on for you? The second thing that you're going to do in these cases is you need to validate what people say to you um, because you're asking people to sort of talk about things that are hard to talk about, which in medicine we do all the time. And yet we're used to validating medical things. And and somehow we forget that that's the most incredible, important piece of what we do. Like just taking them in and saying, wow, wow. It sounds like it's like, this has been hard for all of us, but it sounds like it's been particularly hard for, for you guys. Tell me, tell me more about that. And then, you know, once we've sort of begun that process, we're already involved in trauma-informed care because fundamentally trauma-informed care is about a relationship. I I should let you guys ask ask more questions, but one of the things that's so exciting for me about doing trauma-informed care is that trauma occurs because of a consequence of relationships not being there to support kids and families. Recovery happens within relationships. And we, as medical providers, in particular pediatric medical providers, have this awesome opportunity. We are the people that sit in that relationship. People are coming to us saying, I, I don't know what to do for my child. In, in, in fact, what they're saying is, I don't know how to make this relationship do its healing magic. And we're there to sort of say, hey, with us putting our brains together, we can figure this out. We can do that work. And so that's what's really exciting about starting trauma-informed work is that is that we're starting to help the relationships that are what heals trauma. But if we don't do that, then we actually have a it's really almost impossible to do trauma-informed care. And so that is really a fundamental principle. So the question you asked is how do you start? That's actually the right first question. And once you've done that, you've already started providing trauma-informed care. You've, you've, already, you've already done it. So one question I have is, you know, a lot of, I've had some patients who had lots of trauma in their lives. And a lot of times it may not be until like the second, third, or fourth appointment with me when they finally feel comfortable with me. Um, because as you say, it's a relationship that you're building with them. And honestly, for a lot of my patients who have had these types of traumas, there's a lot of distrust with uh, authorities or medical personnel. There are other types of ways which we can sort of come across these too. Like say if they're coming in for a wellness check, you know, they, a lot of people are also good at masking some of this, some of their, their trauma in the past too. 
are there ways in which we can sort of screen for for these sort of traumatic events? Should we be screening for these traumatic events? That's a million dollar question right now, right? So there's there's a lot of talk right now about screening for adverse childhood experiences or screening for ACEs, giving people questionnaires to to do that. You know, using screening tools um, has a value when it's used in the right setting for the reasons that screening tools are effective, right? So the value of a screening tool is that it is allows you to have a, a validated tool that gives you a predictive value and that you know what to do with the results of that screening tool. The problem right now is that for experiences, we're talking about risk, right? We're, we're saying what, what things have happened to you. And there's not a one-to-one correlation. Like, so if, if a bad thing happens to you, there's not necessarily the same consequence for different people. And there's not necessarily a clear consequence. And there's a lot of variables to that risk factor, right? Like how long did it happen? And in what context did it happen? And and there's, there's much to it that goes into what leads to trauma. So it becomes a little challenging for us to say, here's a screening tool, which is going to do what we usually expect screening tools to do. So some of this is, again, back to language, right? Pediatricians are used to saying, here's my developmental screening tool. When we started using developmental screening tools, we had a, a set of specific things we could ask about. We knew that if we got a specific score on this screening tool, we could guide people to a specific set of resources. When we're asking about trauma and we're talking about asking people about their risk factors, that doesn't exist, right? It doesn't, it, you're not going to get a particular score that's going to give you an answer. You're not going to have a particular place that you need to send people because risk can lead to a number of different consequences and those will need different types of responses. And so we could kind of talk about this for hours, but th- there's there's a, some significant concern about just sort of handing out a screening tool. And you know, we already said that, that it has to happen within a relationship. So people think, oh, well, I have a screening tool. Well, maybe I'll have my front desk give out that screening tool, or I'll have somebody check in or do it before I even come in the room. But of course, we're talking about some things that are pretty relying on a relationship. So it, it becomes a challenge then to, to sort of dis- take this screening tool and plop it into a different place outside of that relationship. Within a relationship, can you ask questions? And that's what, that's what I would call surveillance, right? Can you, can you, in the course of normal well-child visits, add into what you normally do? Hey, since I last saw you and we have this relationship, has anything scary or upsetting happened for you or your child? There are other questions we can ask that we know lead us to a path of where we need, know we need to ask more questions. Has your child had any changes in their in their school, in their and how they're functioning at school or how they're functioning at home. Has anyone come or gone from the household lately? Are you worried about your child having been exposed to something? There are some specific questions we can ask. We can even link it to symptoms. You have we have a patient in our uh, cash lack hospital who's demonstrating symptoms, and we can link it to the symptoms and say, hey, you know, when I have patients who come in with symptoms of abdominal pain. Sometimes people are having that kind of pain related to a scary or upsetting experience that's happened to them. Do you know of any upsetting experience that happened to your child at school or at home or in the neighborhood? You know, it it puts it into context for the family. And it also is saying to them, why do you need to know this? What, why is this important information for us in this visit? Um, and, th- and those are important contextual things for us to make this a, a psychologically safe place for for that family to talk about what's going on for them. I appreciate your role model and having the exact questions because I could almost see that being part of a better part of my well child dot phrase rather than, you know, is your, are you drinking well water and having a specific, since I last saw you, has anything scary occurred? I think that's a nice pearl that I will already walk away with. As a follow-up to that, when do you feel primary care pediatricians should be probing a little deeper than kind of the first answer. As Chris mentioned, a lot of times they're good at masking and will say, hey, everything's fine. Are there certain red flags? Are there certain indicators that we should really be probing and being like, yeah, but you know, there's a lot going on right now. Like, how are you? So I have a couple answers to that, actually. Um, so one of the things that you're pointing out is that families often give us breadcrumbs, right? They don't come out and say, hey, this really devastating thing is happening for me. But I would actually back it up, right? I think trauma-informed care actually is nested in resilience-informed care, right? If we are going to just start this conversation 
only after something bad has happened, we've missed the great opportunity of well-child care, right? The opportunity of well-child care is that we start this conversation right at the very first time we meet a family when a baby is young. And our goal in pediatrics is always building resilience. What is resilience? Resilience is positive adaptation to or in spite of significant difficulties. And that's Ann Mastin's definition. And she's a brilliant resilience researcher. And she calls this resilience building she, she you know she identifies the fact that you know people aren't born with resilience it's it's something that can be developed and grown and nurtured and people build it like a skill and you get it through the everyday life experiences that kids have in play and in those connections that they have with people and she actually calls that process of developing resilience ordinary magic which i, I absolutely love that term right ordinary because on, for most kids and families, it's happening all day, every day, and you don't even notice. It, it just happens, right? People build resilience. And yet when it doesn't happen or when it is challenged, we know it's magic because there has got to be some kind of magic string because it's falling apart. And what are my strings? Like, what, what am I going to put back together? Like, how do I make that magic trick work? And Ann Mastin goes further, and she gave us the pieces that have to go into it. And I told you already, I love playing with words. We turn them into a mnemonic, right? So it's a thinking and learning brain. It's a sense of hope. It's, a, it's having a sense of efficacy, which means I can control my own environment. It's being attached to a caregiver. It's having your developmental skills build one upon the other. And it's having that wider social connection. And if you put those together, the acronym is THREADS, thinking and learning brain, hope, efficacy, attachment, regulation, and social connectedness, threads, or development. I forgot the D. <laughs> like I'm not a good speller. So, But what you want to do in general pediatrics is you want to be building those things and talking to families about it from the get-go. What is my goal for teaching, uh, uh, talking to a mom about baby going back to sleep? Well, my goal, I mean, do I care if the kid learns to go to sleep on their own? No, my mom could crawl into, you know, be in the bed. They could share a bed. You know, the kid's going to be fine. Maybe college will be a challenge for mom who, probably wants to not go to college with the child. But, you know, what it builds is, is you're teaching a child to, to, go, to learn to put themselves to sleep is they're building efficacy and they're building their own self-regulation, right? That's you're building resilience skills. And we know that kids who don't learn to put themselves to sleep go on to have more likelihood of anxiety and depression by the time they're nine years old. So we know that these are skills kids and families need to build. So what I want to do is I want to build with my families, Chris, so that when, when we get to a place where they start to notice something's going wrong, that we have a common language already. Okay, that's the ideal. What if you work in an emergency room? What if you are seeing this person in quick sick? And I've never met this family before, but I still have to talk to them about this. I think what you're saying is, how do I figure out that there's something going on here? And, you know, we, we start by having, building that relationship. How are you? What's going on for you? Tell me about you. Let's think about this together. It matters how we approach that relationship in our vocal tone and our body language, you know, that, that there, and we can talk more about that. Like, what are things that make people feel safe? You also want to let people go as far as they're ready to go and give them an open door so they can come through that door when they are ready and say, hey, you know, when you said everything was okay, I heard you say okay, but the way you said it made me think maybe it's not 100% okay. And is that something you want to talk more about? Giving them the opportunity to say, this is a place where we can talk about this. This is a place where I welcome that conversation. And sometimes it means I'm going to have to turn away from my electronic medical record and look, you know, look at people. And again, we have to think about culture and if that's culturally appropriate for that family. We also have to think about what's the setting. Is this, you know, are we in the room with her four kids or his five kids and it, they're screaming and we just have to get through it? And sometimes it means, hey, you know, I think there might be something you might want to talk to me about, not in front of the kids. It'd be okay if I called you at the end of your day. Today will be a good time for me to call you. You know, it, again, it opens up that space that says, this is a place where this is okay for us to talk about. And what we find is that when people practice this way, it means that ultimately people that are, are their patients and families feel like they can have these conversations over time. It doesn't always happen at the first visit. It may happen later. 
And we also may be the people that need to keep making those links and saying, hey, I know you 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 said nothing was going on, but you've been in here three times with abdominal pain and we've we've worked it up. Do you think maybe there's something that we're missing together? Is there something else that you have had in the back of your head that you're worried about? Where we, again, continue to open up the space saying, this is much I know. I'm a medical specialist and we've looked for something else and I'm not finding it. What do you know and what can you bring? What are you bringing to this conversation that we can solve this together? This is great. And, and so the follow-up question. So in our, in our case, Sam's mom, we've developed rapport with her. We, we've met with him, the family several times and she does share. She's, she's lost her job. She's recently moved homes. Her partner has some struggles with alcohol and there's a recent straining order due to some physical abuse in the past. She's struggling to balance her job search, helping Sam at home and school, and and frankly, battling with some of her own depression. So she gives us these, these tangible issues. And when we've developed the relationship and, and have gotten that data, what is the next then what's the next step? What can we do once we identify some of these trauma or whether they're ACEs or whatever, what can we do in the exam room to really practice trauma informed care? Yeah, because I think most people upon hearing all that would be like, wow, that is way more than I can handle in a 15 yeah, minute visit. What am I order. going to do? Right. Yeah. yeah. How, how, how do I get this out of my hands right away? I think the first question, again, this is a relationship asking, you know, talking to that mom and saying, wow, I am so honored that you would share all that with me, that this is a place where we really need to have this conversation because all the things that you shared with me can impact you for sure. And we're talking about, again, coming back to the relationship. And we're, we're going to need to sort of make a point that mom's ability to, to support the child is contingent on her ability to manage all these things that she's managing herself. And so you want to start by asking the caregiver, what is what is their priority of all the stuff we've talked about? You've come to me with this abdominal pain. Is that your the, the biggest thing that we should take on today? Or is there something else that we should take on? You know, tell me what's going on. If a caregiver has like a list of things for their child and, and they're like, I, I don't even know where to begin. I will usually start, if we're talking about the child, I'll usually start with sleep because if people are not sleeping, then the rest of everything is so much harder. But when a caregiver identifies what it is that they want to work on, that's that's where you're going to go. Then kind of in my head, I'm actually going down, I'm, I'm branching off into two things. One is, what are some things that we're going to help this caregiver to do for their child immediately? What are the things that I'm going to have to think about, you know, getting referring to someone else? So what am I going to do? It's the same as everything in medicine, right? We're, we're When we have an orthopedic complaint, right, we... We decide what do I need to do for pain management? What am I going to do to make you know make it so that this injury doesn't get worse? And do I need to refer out? And I, I actually have I, I've with the acronyms right orthopedic complaints. We use splints right for that, so we can do a splint for a trauma complaint too. And S stands for say trauma can be the cause, right? You've come to me with this concern. It is 100% natural that kids who are dealing with all these things in, in, a, in, in the house with you, that belly pain is sometimes what we, what we see and that that's a, a normal response to these really tough stressors. So say trauma can be the cause. P, <laughs> problem solve. Again, going back to what is mom's number one thing? Like if, if, if she says, I just need for us to sleep or I just need, you know, I need to have something I can do for her when her belly pain's the worst. What are we going to do? So problem solve. L, language. Language for mom and the child about what's going on here. This is a normal response to trauma. We expect it to be felt in the body. You know, when we talk about feelings, it's because we feel them in our bodies and you are feeling all this stuff that's going on. I is for investigate further. Mom has told you that there's a partner who's done some things that may be unsafe, and you may need to ask some more questions because sometimes our job does involve needing to get emergently child welfare involved or some other people who need to work on this right away. And I think we can never walk away from the fact that sometimes that's a big piece of what we have to do. Also, we may also need to ask questions about, is this child suicidal or is mom suicidal? Are, are, we, are we safe in the urgent time? And is to normalize it. Say, and, you know, the, the, and this is a common thing that I see. This is a common response to what's going on in COVID-19. Boy, oh boy, is this a common thing that we're finding. Um, and you know, we normalize 
everything in medicine, right? Your family comes in, they've been up all night with the ear pain. And we say, oh, see this all the time. Look, it's an ear infection. I'll give you antibiotics. We normalize like a horrible diagnosis by saying, look, you know, this is a really upsetting diagnosis, but we've got a place for you to go. We, we have, I want you to go see the specialist. There's a way forward. And one of the things we often forget to do with trauma is we forget to help families see the future ahead of them, that, that there's a way we're going to go, we're going to walk over this bridge together and we're going to get to the other side. And it's going to, there's a resolution to this. There's absolutely a resolution to this. And T is therapy or referral for treatment that is outside of us. So we're going to splint it. You guys wanted to know, okay, I'm overwhelmed. What am I going to tell this mom in the immediate period? And here's where I actually, you know, like if I have a a sprain, a back to my orthopedic comparison, I would say, you know what, I want you, I'm not going to go into the physiology of, of swelling. I'm not going to go into, you know, why, you know, particular injuries cause different particular things. I'm going to say, you know what, let's use rice. I want you to rest it, ice it, elevate or compress it and elevate it. And so we need to have those quick and easy things that are ready for trauma complaints. And the one I go to first is the three R's, which stands for reassure safety. That's R, the first R. The second one is routines and rituals. And the third one is regulate reassure safety. Fundamentally, what trauma does is it takes away our feeling of being safe. And for kids who are experiencing all this, they fundamentally feel unsafe. Something is going on with their caregiver and they know it. They know that things are unsafe. So how can this caregiver help this child to feel safe? It's by saying, you know what, honey? Even though these things are going on, you're safe, you're safe, you're safe. Showing with hugs. Maybe it's needs that they need to create a tent in the child's room so that she has a safe place that she can go to. You're safe, you're safe, you're safe, you're safe. Say it again and again. Rituals and routines, in particular daily routines, help kids to calm down. It drops the stress response because it takes all those everyday things off our plate and allows us to put those on autopilot so we have enough psychic energy to deal with everything else. Families who are dealing with all of this thing, she's got lost her job. She's has this partner with the alcohol issue. She's moved. Routine may be the thing that went out the window first because nothing's routine for them. Making sure that she knows that that's really a critical piece for both her and her child right away. And then regulating is a big topic. And we can talk about regulating for the, for the rest of this podcast, but if you're going to pick one thing, first, we want to do some relaxation skills because what we want to do, regulating is being able to manage your own emotions and, and what's going on for you. You have to be able to name them and then manage them. And, and we can talk about that. But before we can even get there, we usually need to do some relaxation skills. We can use belly breathing. Is This is a family that is religiously involved talking about bringing prayer in. Can we do mindfulness? You know, there are so many things we can do, muscle relaxation. And what does relaxation do? It's usually about focusing the mind on one thing so you're not all over the place. And it also is about stimulating the body to use the physiologic ways that we relax. So deep proprioceptive centers help us relax. That's why hugs feel good. So squeezing muscles and and muscle relaxation. Deep breathing stimulates the vagal nerve, also part of our relaxation. Doing things like swinging or dancing stimulates the vestibular system. So that also is part of our relaxation. It's why we rock babies and sit on the swing and sit in a rocking chair. So there's some basic things we swallowing, you know, doing um, mindful eating, because swallowing is one of the most primitive ways that we feel safe. Why do babies feel safe when they suck on a pacifier or, or, or have a bottle or, or breastfeeding? Because sucking and swallowing is part of our natural calming mechanism. So by the way, if you're having a meeting and it's particularly tense, give everybody something to eat or drink, and it's going to calm everybody right down. Oh man, so That's a lot, but, um, but those lot. are the places I would start. So, so my, my, my question is, I, I think, um, you know, I understand, you know, if, if, if you're in, in the moment and you're trying to you know go through those three R's and, you know, I, I think I can, I can reassure safety. I, I, that, that makes sense to me. I think that's something I can work through, you know, rituals and routines. I definitely can definitely talk to, talk to the patient, see about how to get these back on track. But a lot of these regulating th- things, you know, these, the, these mindfulness exercises, things like that, these are things that I, I don't, I don't think I've ever been trained on. What, what types of resources do we as clinicians have that we can sort of learn these things so that we can then bring them to our patients? Or is this something that can be done easily? Are there internet resources? Are there books I could read? Like, how, how do I go about um, developing those skills to teach? 
Yeah, so there are plenty of internet resources. There are plenty of books. But you know what I would go to first is Sesame Street and Communities. And I would pull up Elmo's Belly Breathing as my first way to go. I can't picture, I can't think of a kid that hasn't loved Elmo's Belly Breathing, even my older teenagers, because it's silly. And we use silliness all the time as a way for us to kind of get through and break through in these conversations. But using Sesame Street and Communities has some great resources. There's a downloadable thing called um, Breathe, Think, Do, which also helps people to kind of calm down and, and get to that. There's a number of mindfulness apps. You need to only go to the app store, pull one down onto your phone and start to learn how to do it. It is easy enough. And then to show families, if you have families that have their own smartphones, help them to download it while they're there with you in the office. And now you're already off to the races. If you're in a place where you have an EMR and you can create a sheet about how to do belly breathing, then you can create a sheet where you push a button and it pops out for this family. So there are, there are a lot of easy ways for us to pick up these skills very quickly so that we can kind of start off with families in a, in a fairly simple but specific way. Because families, like, I don't know where to start. Just the way you feel, like, I don't know where to start. Families definitely feel like, I don't know where to start. And giving them one thing to do is an important piece of this. We haven't even talked about the brain physiology of trauma, which could fill it up. But what trauma does is it, it it impacts our brain. And one of the things it does is it takes offline our prefrontal cortex, right, which is responsible for executive function. Executive function is working memory, cognitive flexibility, and impulse control. Those are all really important for doing well in school and doing well at work. But under threat, that prefrontal cortex is a liability. I don't want impulse control. I do not want to remember what I learned yesterday and apply it to today. I don't want to think about something that I've learned and figure out how I could twist it so that it has a better applicability today. Think about how you felt in March when COVID was first hitting. Did you feel like, uh, I, uh, what did I do all day? I, I can't even think straight. Uh, what's going on? That was your prefrontal cortex just getting shot totally because you are under constant threat and constant stress. And for our families, imagine what it's like to live in March of 2020 all the time. And that's what it feels like. So you don't want to give them 16 things to do. You want to say, here's one simple thing that you're going to do because that, and you're going to take one step and then you're going to call or follow up with them and do step number two, because it is so overwhelming to have all of this going on at once. This is great. This is a lot, but I feel like it's a lot of something where I, a lot of people, including myself, feel like there's no, don't know what to do for the next step. And now I'm going to splint and I'm going to do the three R's and I'm going to do Elmo's belly breathing, which I am most excited to look up immediately when we finish. Um, <laughs> these are great tangible next steps. In our patient, they had, you know, Sam had abdominal pain and, and we did this work up and, you know, it was almost like we ruled out other things. So trauma informed care. Are there other things as far as behavioral regression or urinary incontinence, or I feel like there are other classic symptoms that a mom or a parent might bring in. And um, as part of that, do you have tips on how to negotiate this concept of, I think that this might be related to stress. Um, and so rather than the urology referral, I'm going to pull up an Elmo video. Is there a way that you negotiate that or have tips to reconcile that to really get buy-in from parents, especially if, like you mentioned, if it's an urgent care visit? Yeah. I mean, that, that's an excellent question. Um, and some of it is also, again, going back to the caregiver and saying, what do you think is going on? Because many times with the caregiver, especially a caregiver who themselves is dealing with a lot of stuff we think about people having difficult moments, but when you're dealing with all this stuff, everything becomes difficult. It's not that there's a difficult moment, like everything's overwhelming. I mean, again, think about what we've all said to each other in 2020. Of course, it's 2020, like everything is difficult. And so saying to the caregiver, what do you think is going on? What are you worried about? Is an important thing to put on the table and say, you know, maybe that caregiver says, I think that there's something very serious going on and helping that parent to sort of identify what would make you as the as the medical provider think that this is something more serious and right now why you don't think it. And I think sometimes we forget to spend that time with caregivers addressing what is making them the most worried about this right now. Also saying to the caregiver, you know, we've talked about 
how it's important for us to think about what else is going on and if there's been anything scarier, something that's happened and how the body responds to that. And that these are normal responses of the body to those stressors. It's not that there's something wrong with your child. It's that the body is supposed to respond to keep a child safe. And, you know, we talk about this all the time. I, we take care of kids in foster care. So foster parents often say, this child will not sleep. What am I going to do? Well, when you're under threat, the brain turns on the reticular activating system, and that's supposed to keep you awake under threat, right? Because if there's a tiger chasing you, you don't want to lay down and take a nap. So similarly, when kids are experiencing threatening things in their environment, their brain turns on the reticular activating system. Again, we all know that this reticular activating system works because everybody has suffered from insomnia during COVID-19, especially those of us in medicine. So helping families to recognize what's going on with the brain. When we talk about physiologic symptoms, belly pain, urinary pain, constipation issues, one of the things that we can talk about is we can say, hey, you know, there's a part of our bodies that is trying to keep us safe when, when there's scary things happening. And it's called the sick syndrome. You know, just think about it. We were built as creatures to live in the wilderness and to hang out in the cave. And if there's a tiger out front of the cave, we probably shouldn't leave the cave, right? We should stay in the cave. But unless the governor has given us a stay-at-home order or we don't feel well, we're going to leave the cave. So what the body does when it's under threat is it tries to say to you, for God's sake, stay in the cave. And so it gives you headaches and stomach aches, and it makes you feel yucky, so you stay in the cave. And I appeal to mom, and I say, hey, on your most stressed day, you wake up in the morning, and how do you feel? You feel crappy, right? That's your body saying, stay in the cave. Now, I'm worried that your child's body is saying, stay in the cave. And so what do we need to do to help your child so that their body can come out of the cave? And that's not something that's wrong with your child. That's something that's absolutely right with your child. That's perfect. I'm so glad we're seeing this because if your child didn't respond to danger, then that would put them at much greater risk. So this is an important sign of the body. And then there's some ways that we can address that. And then you can kind of get into what you're, what you're dealing with. Again, I, you know, it also depends on the situation. Sometimes we're talking about something much more significant. So, you know, maybe this is a child who's gotten kicked out of school for acting out, or maybe this is a child who's um, disrupting and having such severe tantrums. And I run a foster care clinic, so we see this all the time. And talking to families about the, the idea of triggering and the idea that kids' bodies are developing and learning to live in the situation in which they were growing up in, right? So that the human baby is this got this massively rapidly developing brain and body more that more so than any other creature, right? The human baby is born at nine months, not because the baby's ready to be born. I had this professor in, in medical school and he said, you know, the human baby is only born at nine months because the human baby has to get through the female pelvis and in nine months is the maximum amount of time that the baby can stay in the uterus, right? You have to have the baby come out. Well, the baby's brain is so underdeveloped compared to any other species, right? That you watch the nature channel and the giraffe gets up and he walks over to mom and he says, what tree are we going to for lunch? But the human baby has this massive amount of development going on. So what you want to do is help families understand that that brain is developing based on the experiences of a child. And so if I want a baby to learn to talk, we have to practice language back and forth, serve and return, all that good stuff. But if a child's grown up in something that's scary, the brain is developing to adapt and survive in that situation. And anytime we have something that reminds the brain of that scary thing, the child is going to return to what allowed that child to survive in that setting, right? So if this child, like this, there was a, a partner who had alcohol use disorder, maybe that caregiver or their partner got loud when they were drinking or got scary or got frightening or violent. Now, what did that mean for this child? It meant that that child had to be on alert, had to be ready to fight, had to be able to defend mom. And what did that mean for that child? And helping that caregiver to see that this is not a bad thing, that this is exactly what we want bodies and brains to do. But now that she's been able to get to a safer harbor, we want to teach her child how to let that body relax as well. I haven't directly answered your question because it really depends on the situation, but helping kids and families understand what triggers are and how our bodies are designed to help us survive. These aren't, you know, I think one of the worst things about traumatic experiences and how we 
define kids is that people have for so long felt like there was something wrong with them and something bad with them. And we gave them diagnoses, you know, so much of, of what's happened and, and where I learned this was in foster care is that we gave kids diagnoses starting with ADHD, but oppositional defiant disorder and conduct disorder and bipolar disorder and d- developmental delay. These are kids whose bodies developed and adapted to help them survive in situations. And they needed to make those adaptations to survive. Those weren't bad. Those were actually quite adaptive. And it is, if we misinterpret it by not putting on that trauma lens and looking at it from that perspective, then we're the ones making a mistake, not the child's body. And that's what you want to communicate, that this isn't something wrong with the child. This is something very right with the child, but not working for the child anymore. And so how do we help them to recover? You had mentioned things like uh, uh, the pandemic, like COVID, and also with all of the countries reckoning with racism. Are there specific ways that the clinician's role is different in identifying trauma exposure? And are some of these, whether it's related to COVID or not, some of these trauma exposures disproportionately affecting marginalized communities? How can we be a little more aware and equipped to address these issues as well. Absolutely. You know, I think one of what COVID has done is it has shined a bright light on what trauma does. And it's, you know, COVID is impacting everyone. It is certainly impacting folks who who have ra- the, there's racial disparities and economic disparities which are being highlighted by COVID-19 and we're all becoming more aware of what for, for some families and kids have been dealing with all along and i think one of the silver linings is that we are all becoming aware of the fact that we we need to be paying attention to trauma informed care you know one of the things we talked about is that the body adapts and changes to help people survive in the environment that they're in it comes at a cost right so the cost of survival is actually on longevity, right? If you think about what's happening from an evolutionary standpoint is when you're experiencing traumas, your body is trying to help you to survive and from an evolutionary standpoint to reproductive age. After that, eh, you're done. We don't really care, right? So people say, well, why would all these things happen if it shortened lifespan? Well, what it does is it actually forces you into... Um, we see from trauma that there's multiple things that happen, but m- mostly what it does is it forces you into, you know, being able to reproduce quickly and then be done with you. We don't, you know, from an evolutionary standpoint, you're, you're done. So what happens with trauma are these changes to the brain and the body, right? So there's changes at the brain level that promote survival at the cost of development and higher order thinking. There's changes primarily to the immune system to allow you to deal with a, a tiger bite, right? So there's alterations where there's this upregulation of the inflammatory system at a cost. And the cost is to humoral immunity or the ability to fight infection. So for kids and families that have been under chronic stress from racism, from economic disparities, from all those things that we talk about, these are kids and families that have constantly had these, these pressures and stresses on their body. Now we add an infectious disease and we know that they are going to have a decreased ability to fight infection and an increased inflammatory response. What are the two things that make COVID the most deadly? It has to do with your ability to fight infection and a rapid and profound inflammatory response. So we are seeing what we know happens with trauma. COVID is almost defining for us who are the people who have suffered the most trauma because it impacts exactly where people who've experienced trauma are the most vulnerable. The other thing that happens is that one of the things that I want to distinguish here is that people have sometimes equated adverse childhood experiences and social determinants of health. And and we talked in the beginning about defining things. Adverse childhood experiences, as they were originally defined by Anda and Folletti, were 10 things, but they were things that happened within the caregiving relationships. They were a different types of abuse. It was domestic violence, divorce, substance use in the household, incarceration of a caregiver. They happen in in the caregiving relationship. Social determinants of health are things outside the family environment, but they can have profound impact on that caregiving relationship, but they're not within the caregiving relationship. 
when we talked about what causes toxic stress and what, how do you define what toxic stress is, toxic stress is all these bad things that happen to you without sufficient buffering from the caregiving supports that you have. So in some senses, those, those ACEs, those adversities are the most damaging because they're happening within that caregiving relationship so that they are directly impacting that ability to, to deal with that. Social determinants of health, things like poverty, things, things like the not having access to health care, things like having environmental stressors, those are going to push on the caregiving relationship. Things like racism actually sit right in the middle because they're impacting kids and families very directly. You know, I don't think that we are talking about parents being racist with their own children, but does that racism impact that caregiver's job? Does it impact their economic status? Does it impact what they're, that wear and tear on them every day? Absolutely. And then that can have an impact on the caregiving relationship. So there is a bit of a difference, but make no mistake, the profound impacts are there from both. And so we get into a lot of like, well, this is an ACE and that's not an ACE and this is a social determinant. I think we can say that the definitions are different, but the profound impacts on people cut across that whole spectrum. And I think where it's worthy of us thinking about the definition is what can we do about it, right? And when we talked about, you know, should I give people a list of what the bad things are that happen to them? That's where I say, yeah, I, I don't think so. Because again, I want to go to the buffering relationship. What can I do? I can't impact all those bad things that happen to people directly. I can work for social good. I can work to help, you know, diminish poverty and get people to food banks and resources and Fundamentally, my job as a medical provider is to work within and help that caregiving relationship to be buffered. So what can we do in that relationship? This has been such a winding answer to your question, but I think people often mistakenly say, well, you know, racism and economic things, they're not ACEs, so they're not going to have an impact. Oh, yes, they are. It's going to be a different impact. Absolutely but it is a profound impact. And we know it's an impact because it's fit hitting exactly in the physiology, which makes people vulnerable. These are the same things that make people vulnerable to cancer and cardiac disease. All those reasons why people who had high ACE scores were more likely to suffer health consequences later. And the fact that the original ACE was only 10 things really just had to do with the researchers. They were, they were coming up with things that were immediately apparent to them, and they were talking about what was in the caregiving relationship. I think we've really established that there are other things that can profoundly impact kids and families. Uh, so, so, you know, we, if we want to support the child, you know, what, what are some ways in which we can also support the mom, and how does that affect the child? Sure. So, you know, in our case here, mom's got a a bunch of things impacting her and impacting her ability to to be supportive and helping her child in the stressors that the child is feeling. So one of the things that we want to do is, with caregivers is we are helping them to think about their side of the relationship, right? The relationship is the mom side and the kid side. And when caregivers are overwhelmed, there's a couple of things that are going on for them. And we often say to the caregiver, let's get curious and not furious together. Let's think about what's going on for this child. And then I, I have ABCs. And A is thinking about um, attuning to your own body, like recognizing what's going on for you. And when as I mentioned before, there's these tough moments. It feels like every moment is hard. And that can usually be because of something that the child is doing and that there's something going on with the child, you know, that there's a behavior that they're doing or there's a symptom that they're having that's particularly worrisome. There can also be that the child's behavior or symptom is triggering the caregiver to think about something that happened to them in the past or reminding them of something that happened to them. And is that's what's happening? Or is there something going on in that caregiver's life that is what's really upsetting them and that the child is sort of secondary? Like, are there economic problems? Are there problems with a relationship? Are there problems with housing? Are there financial problems? And helping that caregiver to identify where in this child-mom relationship, where's the problem lie? The B of ABC is balance, helping that caregiver to think about how do they, what do they need to do for themselves to balance themselves? And that's where we come back again to what can we help mom to do kind of all day, every day to help regulate herself? Does she need to have people that she can talk to? Does she need to get in, into a class or a prayer group or a church group? Or does she 
need to just do some deep breathing right before she's going to interact with this child and, and helping that caregiver to develop some very simple skills for herself or himself. And then C is connection. And connection is so critical. And honestly, we probably should have started this conversation with connection because it is in our relationships with others that we have recovery from trauma and that we build resilience, right? Connection, connection, connection. And caregivers need those connections just as much as the kids do. Another tangent is that we talk about the stress response, right? The stress response is when, and when you're under threat, people talk about the freeze response and the fight or flight response. But we forget about the fact that we as humans are pretty terrible with both of those. Like freeze response means you stay still and hope the predator walks right by you. But we are too big. We get noticed. And fight or flight means the predator is coming at you. So you run really fast. Or you try to fight. But we don't have claws and we can't hide underwater. We're pretty terrible at that. And if you're a child or you're pregnant or you have children with you, you're going to be really bad at that. Humans actually evolved to have a fourth response, which is our most effective, which is called the affiliate response or tend and befriend. And what it means is that under threat, the first thing I will do is I will look left and right and say, hey, who can help me here? And if, if this is oxytocin mediated, not cortisol or adrenaline mediated, I look left and right and I actually get better at recognizing, are there people who can help me? And in fact, if there are, I'm actually better at bringing people toward me and helping them deal with this problem. If I look left and right and people who are supposed to help me won't help me or can't help me, or they're the people who are hurting me, well, now I'm in trouble. I can't use the affiliate response and I get shoved over to fight or flight. So when we talk about all those physiologic consequences of trauma, that's from not being able to use affiliate. Think about what racism does. It says we don't, you know, racism is fundamentally like denying that we are with you and it put, you know, it says you're bad and we don't like you. It's absolutely the opposite of the affiliate response. Think about what it means for kids when their caregivers are stressed or worse or substance using or in domestic violence, they look left and right and there's no one there to help them shoved back to fight or flight. And then we see all these consequences of stress. Same thing is true for the caregiver. If they look left and right and there is no one there to help them, they also have nothing but fight or flight to work from. So helping caregivers to map who's in their life that can help them. And we do this by saying, you know, often caregivers say there's nobody, nobody can help me with this because again, it gets overwhelming quickly. And so we want to say, let's, let's do a little map. If it's the middle of the night and there's an emergency, house is on fire, who are you going to call? Usually they'll say there's a neighbor downstairs or there's a neighbor across the street, or my mom lives across town, or there's some friend that I have that I know I could call in an emergency. Okay, great. Next morning, who are you going to call? And then they can bring in other people. Maybe there's someone from church. Maybe there's a doctor. Maybe there's a therapist. Maybe there's a teacher. Specifically around supporting that kid, you can ask about, is there someone particularly that knows this child? Is there another parent who, the best friend's parent? Can you call them? Also identifying who they should not talk to. Sometimes stressed parents turn to other children in the household and inappropriately use them to deal with things that really adults need to deal with. Also, is there a partner that really they're not having a good relationship with or an ex-partner that they shouldn't be? So thinking about who are the connections for that caregiver? Because what we want to do is help that caregiver to recognize what is the problem, how can I regulate myself, and who are my connections so that they can provide to the child what the child needs. And fundamentally, if we boil it all down, all of our threads, all of our things that we need, a child needs the same things all the time. Same stands for safety availability of a caregiver that's predictable and compassionate, mind in mind, a caregiver who is looking at the world with their mind in mind, and E is an emotional container, someone who hold that child's emotions for them. Safety we've talked about, the availability of that caregiver is critical. Mind in mind is such an important concept because we have this idea in America that we figure ourselves out, right? This Jack Kerouac on the road, figure myself out thing. It is so critical that we don't figure ourselves out. People help us figure ourselves out. Baby cries, you pick up the baby and you say, oh, you're hungry. And the baby learns, oh, this feeling is hunger and, and people help me because you fed that baby. And then the toddler is frustrated. So the caregiver looks over and says, hey, buddy, it looks like you're frustrated. Let me help you. And the child learns, oh, this one's frustration and people help me with that feeling. Compare that to the child who grows up with a stressed caregiver who when they cry as a baby says, Oh, you're so greedy. Why do you keep bothering me? That child learns this feeling is greedy and nobody helps you with that. And when the caregiver who's frustrated themselves sees a frustrated child, they say, what are you stupid? You can't figure it out. The child learns this feeling, that one's being stupid. And there's nothing you can do about that. And that 
many times a day over and over begins to define that child for who they are and who the world is. And what we want to do is help the caregiver to look at the world through that child's eyes. What does it mean for that child? And how does the child know that the caregiver is looking at the world for them? How does that, that, child, that caregiver communicate that to that child? And we have different tips and tricks we can do with that. But then being an emotional container, when, when you get upset you need someone to hold it for you that says to you, hey, I got you. I hear what you're saying. You don't want, you know, if you go, if I come home to my husband in the end of the day and I'm totally dysregulated and I say, oh God, it was such a frustrating day. If he says, wow, dear, that was very upsetting for you. I'm sure that must've been a horrible thing. I, 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 are you not listening to me? So they need to hold it with some emotion, but also not dysregulate. If I come home and I say, oh my God, I'm so frustrated with work. It was so long. I was on that podcast for forever. Um, and my husband says, oh, I can't believe you were on that podcast for forever. Why are you always doing podcasts instead of being here with me? I need you here with me. Then I, I learned that, that I have no safe place to turn to and that there's no one who's going to look at the world, who will hold my emotion and look at the world with my mind in mind. And those are critical things that we need. And kids absolutely need them. We need them our whole life long, but kids absolutely need those from the caregiver. I feel like if this episode is going to make me a better parent I, I, as a whole. I feel the same. I, mean, I feel like I'm just going to be a better like person. Every, like everything, I'm like, wow, I, I've not been a good father sometimes. <laughs> I feel really bad now. Um, I've, I've learned more than just being a better pediatrician, but uh, being a better parent. Yeah, just a better person. Maybe if we could do this every month, uh, Dr. <laughs> I think this would be really good for all of our uh, personal growth. We don't even have to record. With just a therapy <laughs> session for everybody on on your podcast, yeah. Um, um, I'm so I, I'm sorry if I've kind of gone off on tangents. I, honestly, I love talking about this stuff. Yeah. I wasn't joking. I really do. I, I think one one big thing is you know we only have this right now. I mean, we're recording this podcast. It'll be you know an hour some long. Like I'm sure there are going to be a lot of people who are going to listen to this who who want to learn more. Who who want you know we, we talked about other resources like before about like the the regulating stuff. But I mean, how, how where, where can people turn to just learn more about all all of this in general? What are your recommendations for us if we want to learn more about this? Sure. So um, I would recommend two websites in particular. The National Child Traumatic Stress Network, or nctsn.org, has great resources for people in a variety of different professions. So there's information there for caregivers, but there's also information there for schools and child welfare, mental health, and also for medical people. So that has a wealth of resources at, at nctsn.org. If people want to understand the topic better, going to the website for the Center for the Developing Child um, and Google Center for the Developing Child, um, but it's a center that's out of Harvard, and they have great resources talking about all of the aspects of things that we have here, from the day-to-day -day practical to the clinical to the policy-related, and how do we think about these things in that whole spectrum of trauma-informed care. We also have a course through the American Academy of Pediatric called, Pediatrics called PATR, Pediatric Approach to Trauma, Treatment, and Resilience. And if you go on the AAP um, website, you can find out how to enroll in that course. And coming soon to a bookstore near you in May, we have a book coming out about trauma and resilience in pediatric care. Awesome. And this is a little bit of an ignorant question, but is... Um... The specialty of child abuse, I mean, is that who you would consider the trauma specialist? Like if there was a uh, trauma-informed specialty to, to refer or if someone who is in training wants to become more of an expert in this, is that the, the typical path? So, yeah, I mean, I think people who do child abuse pediatrics are particularly attuned to these issues, and, and many of them understand this topic quite well. Other people who kind of study aspects of this and are becoming better advocates for trauma-informed care are developmental and behavior pediatrics. One of the things that's really critical to understand about trauma is that when trauma causes that lower brain to overdevelop, it does so at the cost of the higher brain. So we see developmental impacts. And so our developmental colleagues are becoming much more comfortable and, and familiar with this. Certainly our colleagues in child psychiatry are also familiar with this um, as well. And folks who do foster care who may be from child protection or emergency medicine or primary care are also people who, who do a lot of trauma-informed care. This is great. What are uh, some of the big main take-home points you have for people that have tuned into this podcast? I think that the main thing, if, if people forget everything else, remember that 
toxic stress and trauma is not just the bad things that happen to you. It's whether those things are buffered by the caregivers in a child's life. And that buffering is something that we can coach and support and help with. And that actually is what makes our jobs so incredibly awesome. I mean, I love the fact that there's probably no other professional who has that great honor and privilege to work in the middle of a child and caregiver relationship to promote resilience and recovery from trauma the way we can. You know, our colleagues in psychiatry, we refer to when things are sort of further down the road, but we are starting to see the effects of trauma on kids in infancy when the baby doesn't smile because mom's depressed. And we see it in the toddler who's not picking up milestones because there's a lot of domestic violence at home. And we see it in the adolescent who's got been sexually assaulted but hasn't told anyone, but we're starting to see some of their development go off track. And so we are sitting right there as this is developing, and we're the ones that can recognize it and respond effectively because we have the tools to impact those relationships. And that, I think, is the most exciting thing about being a pediatrician ever. This has been practical and very inspiring. This has been a very eye-opening and productive episode that I am very excited to, to put on the air. Good. Thank you guys so much. It was yeah. a pleasure to talk to you guys. Thank, thank you so much for your time. Really, we, we are so grateful for your expertise and sharing your passion. Um, and I am excited for, for listeners to share it with you. Great. It's, it's been an honor to work with you guys. Thanks so much. This has been another episode of The Cribsiders. It's for the kids. Get show notes and sign up for our weekly Knowledge Food Formula Feeds newsletter on our website at www.thecribsiders.com. We are committed to providing you with high-value, practice-changing knowledge, and to do that, we need your feedback. So please subscribe, rate, and review the show on Apple Podcasts. It helps. Uh, or feel free to contact us at thecribsiders at gmail.com. In fact, give us good ratings on Apple Podcasts. Send the bad things to thecribsiders at gmail.com. We'll take care of it immediately. Uh, special thanks to our producers tonight for this episode, both Dr. Joan Park and Crystal Nora. You guys are wonderful. Our wonderful social media team on Instagram, on Twitter, on Facebook. Thank you for joining us tonight. I have been Dr. Justin Lee Burke. I've been Joan Park. And this has been Chris the Chew Man Chew. Thank you and good night. Bye. Hey, you've already listened to the entire episode. Now claim CME credit. Continuing education credit is provided by VCU Healthcare Continuing Education. VCU is accredited to provide continuing education to the entire healthcare team. Check it out at cribsiders.vcuhealth.org for more information and to claim your credit after listening to this episode.